It's not about the destination, it's about the journey, is one of those inspiring sayings people used to like to put on posters and fridge magnets, and these days it circulates on the internet. It's often accompanied by an image of a road. It's often accredited, accredited too to famous 19th century American thinker Ralph Waldo Emerson. The problem is it doesn't appear in any of his writings, which is good for people like me who admire many of his quotes because this isn't a good one. There are situations where the journey is forgettable or very hard and it is the destination that matters. Just ask Syrian boat refugees who made that perilous journey between Indonesia and Australia in a leaky, overcrowded fishing boat. For them, it was the destination. The journey with all its horrors and, and fears is most forgettable. And ask the Israelites in numbers. Their journey was hard. A quick recap of where we are here in, in our second week in the Old Testament book of Numbers. Numbers open with the people still living at the foot of Mount Sinai. It's a year on since God saved them from slavery in Egypt and from the pursuing Egyptian army in the amazing parting of the Red Sea. In Numbers chapters 1 to 10, we learn how they obediently set about doing two things in preparation for living in the land of Canaan that God has promised them. First, they're counting and organising all the eligible men from each tribe into an army ready to engage in the taking of Canaan. Second, they've organised things so God can actually dwell with them by building the tabernacle structure where God dwells and they've organised the sacrifices and the priests plus the Levites to make the sacrifices and to look after the tabernacle. All is in readiness for the people to march to the promised land led by the Lord in the cloud to take their inheritance. Looked at another way, God is being faithful to his promises to them. He's organising them so they can dwell in the promised land and he with them. So in Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, just glance back from where Olivia read, and thanks for reading, Olivia. Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. On the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the covenant law then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai and travelled from place to place until the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. They set out this first time at the Lord's command through Moses. And if you glance down to verse 33 of chapter 10, we learn, so they set out from the mountain of the Lord and travelled for three days. So they make a three-day journey. By the end of chapter 10, as they've moved for the first time in about a year, they're on the way. The journey to Canaan only takes 11 days and when they rest again, they're a third of the journey, a quarter of the journey. So far the tone of the first 10 chapters has been marked by Israel's obedience to all that God's required of them. But almost as soon as they pause on their journey, the tone changes markedly. Israel's relationship with God starts to unravel Instead of obedience, it's sin and it's failure. So verse 1 of chapter 11. 
now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord and when he heard them, his anger was roused. In a word, they grumble and that is very offensive to God. Today, I want to look really carefully at their grumbling and having understood why it was such a problem for God, I want us to be warned lest we fall into the same sin. So I've got three sections. The first is long. The others are really short. First, doubting God's goodness, then acknowledging God's goodness and asking for God's goodness. So doubting God's goodness. When you think about it, there would be a bit to grumble about in the wilderness if you were an Israelite. I mean, imagine, I imagine there'd be days when you'd say, it's too hot today or my sandal's broken and it's causing a, a blister. Or sometimes I just get sick of this sand. It'll be good when we get to the pastures of Canaan. Or maybe you just feel tired of always living in a tent. Now, if that was all you said, then I don't think you'd be arousing the Lord's anger. So what did the Israelites do? How did their complaints rouse the Lord's anger? Well, think of why... They are here, three days from Sinai. It's because the Lord is leading them to the promised land, having saved them from their slavery land. Their complaints about their hardships, whatever they were exactly, must stray from expressing struggles with hardship into a suggestion that somehow the Lord is not good or not fair or not kind or not faithful to his promises. Notice that at this point, in his grace, the Lord's anger is really only a warning, a grass fire that probably burns a few tents on the outskirts of this camp of more than 700,000 people. One that Moses can easily ask the Lord to extinguish there in those first four verses. But sadly, the people are in no mood to learn from the warning. In quick succession, the non-Israelite rabble with them start reminiscing about the food they had back in Egypt. And like a virus, the Israelites are quickly infected with a lack of trust in God's goodness. Verse 4, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish in Egypt. We ate it at no cost. And the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. And now, well, we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Fish at no cost in Egypt? What foolish amnesia is this? What about at the cost of your health, your freedom, even your lives as you worked as slaves in very harsh conditions? So harsh that you cried out to God for salvation and he heard you and he sent plagues to force Pharaoh and the Egyptians to set you free. Short memories must have a... You know the song. It's a month, just 13 months, since they got out of slavery. Surely they haven't forgotten how hard it was for them. And it's almost exactly a year ago, as recorded in Exodus chapter 16, since another occasion when they grumbled and complained, just like this, because of a lack of food. And on that occasion, I've put it on the screen... Moses rebuked the people in Exodus 16, verse 8, when he said, 
you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he's heard you grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. On that occasion a year ago, God graciously started to send them the daily manna bread each morning. And that night they ate quail. Short memories. What grounds do they have then a year later to act like God gives them nothing and to reject what he does give them, this manna? There's another story running in this chapter focusing on Moses' reaction to the people's grumbling. I want to step past that and go to verse 18 where God speaks words of judgment and where I think we get an insight into why he's so angry at the people. So look at verse 18 in chapter 11. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. And this is the point. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? You can see why God's so angry there in verse 20. You've rejected the Lord who is among you. He's chosen them. He's living with them. And have wailed, why did we ever leave Egypt? The Lord has done so much to get them to this point, to get them out of Egypt. And he's intent on taking them to the land he's promised them. And they're wailing, why did we ever leave Egypt? Short memories that betray a rejection of all God has done for them. Uh, betray a lack of trust in his good activity and provision in their lives. Well, at the end of the chapter, God keeps his promise and they get meat and lots of it, more quail blown in from the sea on the quail's annual migration trip north. And so tired from this combination of their journey and an unfavourable wind, the quail drop to the ground and pile up outside the camp in piles 90 centimetres high and are an easy catch. For the Israelites. Yet, even then, their attitude to God's goodness doesn't seem to change. For look at verse 33. While the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. This is the original entitled generation. And people die because, verse 34, they craved other food and rejected God's goodness to them. I hope you're feeling a bit unsettled by the force of God's anger in this chapter. One of the great things about the Old Testament is it does help us to see what our holy God and the things that hurt him. Material like this should make us stop, look at ourselves and beware. In fact, in the New Testament, the writers will compare our journey in this life as followers of Jesus making our way on the journey to our promised land, heaven, eternity. They compare that to the Israelites on their journey to their promised land. 
as Paul the Apostle writes to the Corinthian Christians. I'll put it on the screen from chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, verse 10. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Be careful if you've recently been in the habit of doubting God's goodness to you. I don't mean those moments when we're struggling with something and our faith is weak. We all have those times. I mean where we make grumbling and questioning God's goodness a habit. For example, do you doubt God's goodness to you with your health, with your relationships, with your work, with your looks, with your abilities or with your finances? I could go on. Different people can doubt God's goodness in different areas of their life. But we believe that God is sovereign and does all things for our good, even the hard things which we don't understand, but we still try to trust him in them. Habits can turn to life choices. And at some point when you keep up a habit, it becomes a way of life. And the danger here is that you move away from faith in Christ. But there's a better way with our struggles, with our hardships, and that leads me to my second point, acknowledging God's goodness. Imagine you're an Israelite at the time of Numbers 11. So you're 13 months or so out of Egypt and you're camped eight days away from the Promised Land. Now... Everyone, have you got a piece of paper handy and a pen? Grab it now. If you don't have it handy, um, do this in your exercise in your head. I, I want you to, to get you to draw a T shape. So a T. Yep, I mean a T. About 10 centimetres across the top and another 10 centimetres from top to bottom. And if you've studied accounting, you'll recognise what we're drawing. And then... And you can write in English here. You don't have to use Hebrew, even though you're imagining you're a Hebrew. On the left-hand side of the T, I want you to write down all the hard things of your life in the wilderness. Write something down. Think about what it'd be like for them. I'm thinking travel. Might be hard. Traipsing along. No cars. I'm thinking sand. Same food. Maybe you can add other things. And now on the right-hand side of the T, write all the blessings you've received at God's right hand. What blessings have you received 13 months after you've left Egypt and camping eight days away from the Promised Land? Surely escape from slavery... My kids don't have to live in slavery. Getting nearer the promised land. Protection and guidance from God as he's with us and in our dwelling with us. And, and that's a blessing. We're safe. Food. Maybe there's other things you could write. 
it's true, there's something on the left-hand side. Their life was hard. In fact, that word in Numbers 11, verse 1, we have as hardships in our English translation, is a, a Hebrew word that could also be rendered evil. The people were seeing these hard things as evil. No one's pretending that life in the wilderness was easy. But, and this is the point, it was also blessed. When people felt like complaining as if God had given them nothing, they needed to stop and acknowledge that he's given them everything. Now, why don't you do that exercise again right now with the T? When I click my fingers, you're no longer an ancient Israelite, but you're living in the northern beaches of Sydney in the 21st century. Okay, give up. I'm going to give you some, a little bit of time now to complete another version of the T for your life right now. So hard things on the left-hand side. Write the hard things in your life, things that struggle. And some of you have some really hard things, I know. And there's things I don't know, obviously. Hard things on the left-hand side, blessed things on the right-hand side. The reason for doing that exercise is that when you notice yourself grumbling or complaining about your life, one of the practical things to do is to stop and consider your blessings and thank God for them all. And it takes an effort. Sometimes it just feels good to grumble and complain and you actually have to really force yourself to stop and number off the things and Sentence by sentence, I thank you, God, for my church. I thank you, God, for my salvation. I thank you, God, for my family. I thank you, God, that you love me. So many things. It's a good practice, of course, to thank God for things, which is, of course, why we always should include thanksgivings in any of our prayers. And none of this means, though, that you have to pretend that the genuine hard things in your life don't exist. No, there's a better way that the Israelites should have learnt by this time, and that's my third point, asking for God's goodness. Sometimes I've heard uh, women uh, who are mothers refer to their husband's immature moments as making her feel like she has an additional child. Often that's an affectionate description of their husband's obsession with a computer game or a sport. Sometimes it's over a more serious character flaw. So in our case, Catherine might feel like she has five children when she feels compelled to say to her grumbling husband, if you're unhappy about something, please don't whinge, just ask. I hope I'm not the only husband who's needed that reminder over the years about treating my wife well. I hasten to assure you it's very occasional. My third point is that with our very real hardships, we aren't to whinge and doubt God's goodness, to test his patience. We are to remember his goodness in adopting us into his family and take advantage of the family connection. As our Heavenly Father, he loves to give good gifts to his children. So if something is hard, ask him for help. 
What a difference it might have made if the Israelites had said, Moses, can you please ask the Lord if we can have some meat, like last year? And maybe they, they could have said, and could you ask the Lord to use his great power to make next week's manna barbecue flavoured? Instead of complaining and doubting God's goodness, let's ask our Heavenly Father when we find things hard. Let's ask for help to endure or persevere in faith. Ask him to take away that hard, the thing that's hard or to change the situation. Ask for wisdom to know how to deal with the hard thing. Ask for reminders of God's goodness in the midst of your struggle. Now, you know that his answer won't always be exactly what you asked or what you thought you needed, but it'll be good. The thing is that there'll always be a way to respond to the hardship that acknowledges God's goodness to you and doesn't indulge in doubt and rejection of him. Here at the end of this talk, it's interesting to look at Moses and his complaint to God. Moses seems to stray into doubting God's goodness. But it's interesting that God's reaction to Moses is to gently provide him with the help he sorely needed and also to remind him that God's arm is not too short. God has the power to show goodness to all the hungry Israelites and he does that with the quail. Moses has a special relationship with God like no other person in the whole of the Old Testament, in the whole of the Bible. His complaints are interesting. They, they actually don't ultimately have the flavour of doubt and rejection, but they're more like the Psalms. If you think of some of the writing in the Psalms, it's the, the faithful Israelites struggling with their place in the world and crying out to God for help. There's much more to say of Moses, and that's what chapter 12 is about next week. For today, as we close, many is the time in a sermon at some point we've looked at that great advice from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4. If you can consistently put that in practice, you will help to doubt-proof Yourselves. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 7. Let me read it. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thanks for listening. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for... Uh, this encouragement of Paul that in all our hardships, the things that we get anxious about, the things that are hard, every situation, we are to come to you with prayer, petition, ask you our requests. Father, thank you we can ask you anything and trust in your wisdom and power. And thank you, uh, Father, for all the things, all the blessings, all the goodness we've received at your hand that we can all thank you for. I pray that you'd help us to not be people that whinge and complain about things in our life like that you haven't done for us or you should have done, but to be thankful for what we have and to ask you to help change the things that are difficult.
Father, hear our prayer. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.